Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so welcome to the Oral Health Podcast. I'm joined again by Karen, and we're also then going to hear from a special guest. Um, But first of all, Karen, let's just have a bit of a chat. I don't think we get to chat too much. So um, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Sophie. I hope you're well too. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, Mouth Cancer Action Month this year has definitely been keeping us both busy. I know that. Um, and as part of this podcast series, I have been very fortunate to talk to different professionals who are involved in different aspects of mouth cancer care and treatment and also research. Um, so today um, you're going to hear me talk to um, Vin Paleri, who is a surgeon at the Royal Marsden in London. Um, he's quite an important person, so I was quite happy to speak to him. Let me just give you a bit of information about him so he works with both private and nhs patients at the head and neck unit at the royal marsden he's got the most experience with uh, transoral robotic surgery in the uk he's pioneered new robotic surgical techniques to remove uh, cancers from head and neck cancer patients he's wrote over 200 papers he's edited numerous textbooks in his specialty he's the president of the british association of head and neck oncologists the director of the institute National uh, Centre for Recurrent Head and Neck Cancer, which is at the Royal Marsden as well. And uh, he's also the trustee for the Oracle Cancer Trust and a professor of head and neck surgery at the Institute of Cancer Research. So he's quite a busy guy. There's a bit of experience there, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) He sat down and spoke to me about all things head and neck cancer operation. So at what point he normally sees the patient at what point um, he then hands them off to other colleagues, as well as all the different types of surgery people can have for head and neck cancer. Um, And also give some really lovely words of encouragement to people that are currently going through head and neck cancer treatment and was just an all around nice guy to talk to. Um, Really knows his stuff. If it wasn't clear from his, uh, his little uh, biography snippet from the Royal Marsden website. But um, I don't know if in your specialty, uh, Karen, you get to really know things past when it's referred on to the other, the other people after the dentist. Not well, not really. Other than courses that I've attended, um, you tend not to see kind of the results of the um, 
you know the various operations that patients have had to have and the following treatments um that they might need ongoing into the future so by going on courses i can see the amazing work that um these people can do you know rebuilding people's faces their tongues you know so many different um you know great outcomes that that are quite promising for patients um you know especially when you think back to um you know 20 30 years ago the the um the type of surgeries that they can do now are, are phenomenal and uh are very very clever people um and um you know when you you look sometimes and some patients it's really difficult to actually notice unless somebody points it out to you which is is a, an absolutely fantastic result mm -hmm. yeah they are definitely some incredible people but also so smart so passionate um and from talking to to vin it's it's so clear that he loves what he does he loves helping his patients and has such a passion for head and neck cancer treatment um so yeah you'll hear our conversation now um and we hope you enjoy it uh, my name is vin paleri i'm a consultant head and neck surgeon at the royal marsden hospital in london I'm also a professor of head and neck cancer surgery at the Institute of Cancer Research next door. Amazing. So what sort of led you into this specialty? What, what drew you into head and neck cancer treatments? Um, so wh while I was in medical school, I was quite fascinated by the complex anatomy that the head and neck provided. Additionally, as I saw patients later in the third and fourth year, the difficult problems that head and neck cancer patients presented with, the difficult issues they had in dealing with the cancer and uh, the life they were provided with after cancer treatment, all uh, drew me to it because I just wanted to help that particular group of patients who had these issues with head and neck cancer. Head and neck cancer is unique in that once we go ahead and treat the cancer arising in one of these organs, we fundamentally alter what it means to be human. We take away sometimes the power of speech, take away the way people swallow, communicate and interact with the rest of humanity and the environment. And to me, that was challenging and that is something I wanted to work with for the rest of my life. And that is why I took up head and neck cancer as a specialty. It is a really interesting point, yeah. Um, now talk just a little bit about what head and neck cancer actually is, because that can include quite a lot of different types of cancers. Um, and then also a little bit about this journey that people can find themselves on after they finish surgery and they still have all of these um, difficult roads ahead of them. Um, so uh, the term head and neck cancer is an umbrella term that covers many different cancers from the collarbone to the jawbone. Uh, this includes cancers in the mouth, in the throat, in the nose, 
in the voice box, in the ears as well. You can get cancers in the ears. So depending on where the cancer arises from and depending on what treatment we offer to the cancer, the effect that the cancer and the treatment can have on the patient can vary. For example, if we take a small voice box cancer, we could take the cancer out and have a high chance of curing the cancer with very little impediment on the patient's function and quality of life. If it's a small tongue cancer, we could do a relatively straightforward surgical procedure on the tongue and the neck and have a high chance of curing the patient with the patient carrying on with an excellent quality of life. However, if these are other cancers, for example, larger cancers, the back of the throat or the voice box, the treatment is therefore significantly more intense, both surgery and radiation therapy, and therefore the impact of the treatment on the patient's quality of life, on the patient's function, such as swallowing, speech, voice, is all that bit greater. So once treatment is completed, most head and neck cancer patients, and sadly because most of them come to us at a later stage, need significant support in the longer term, well after treatment. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about five years plus after treatment, because head and neck cancer treatment, sadly, as things stand now, leaves patients with long-term side effects. Not only had they had to deal with the cancer, with the worries about cancer, the worries about cancer treatment success, but then they're left with longer term issues many years after treatment is finished. Yeah, that's very true. Um, now, when we think about um, cancer treatments, radiotherapy comes up an awful lot. Um, and it's especially common, I think, with mouth cancer. Um, a lot of the people that we spoke to that have underwent radiotherapy have said that this was one of the most challenging parts of their treatment. Um, what can someone with head and neck cancer or anyone really expect from radiotherapy if, when they're going into their sessions? Um, so radiotherapy is an integral part of head and neck cancer treatment along with surgery and with chemotherapy. Radiation therapy is by its nature a prolonged treatment because we can only give so much radiation treatment per day and that's based on good high quality data that we have accrued in the past. For this reason radiation therapy is quite a prolonged treatment. The minimum course is about four weeks and sometimes it goes up to seven weeks based on the extent of the tumour and the radiation doses required for patients. So the lead up to radiation therapy can be a week to two weeks because it takes that amount of time to prepare patients for radiation therapy. For instance, we will have to get a new planning scan done. We have to assess kidney functions. We'll have to get specific moles done to ensure that patients stay in the same place day after day for the six to seven weeks of radiation therapy. So all the planning is required for two weeks. And while patients are undergoing this in the background, uh, undergoing, uh, let me rephrase that. So while patients are having all these things done in the background, the medical physicists, the radiation therapists, and a whole team is now preparing the delivery of the radiation to the patient. So they're meticulously mapping out the tumor, 
deciding which parts of the tumor receive what doses, which parts of uh, the neck that don't show tumor receive a lower dose and which organs need to be avoided from the radiation field. So a lot of planning is going on in the background, mm -hmm. hence the two weeks. To, that's a lead up to radiation therapy. And once radiation starts, it's only a short treatment every day, maximum half an hour while you get in, get you on the table and uh, the mold is placed, radiation therapy is given. For the first three weeks, four weeks, patients don't usually get much by way of side effects because the side effect profile is cumulative as radiation dose progresses. You'd have heard the term two grays. That's usually the dose given per day, two grays per day. And the doses are given Monday to Friday. So once you get into week four, that's when uh, the skin on the outside of the neck starts getting redder, it gets irritated, the skin peels off. There is a similar side effect on the inside of the throat as well. The lining of the throat gets inflamed, uh, it starts shedding um, and uh, we don't quite understand why some patients have a higher threshold for radiation side effects compared to others, which means that some patients suffer through it much greater than others do. I don't think we have a clear handle on this, but that's just the way the patient's physiology and the patient's body reacts to the radiation. In addition to all this, saliva gets thicker, they find it quite difficult to swallow, and that's a key indication of patients needing support. They may be in pain, pain controls required, they may need um, additional nutritional support. Some patients even need a tube placed through the nose into the stomach to help them with the feeding. Others who have even worse um, uh, swallowing ability and problems before the radiation starts will need a tube into the stomach placed directly through the stomach wall um, so that they can feed themselves through the radiation. So in summary, there is a lead time, a preparatory time, and then radiation goes for six to seven weeks. But patients don't feel much by way of side effects all the way to week four, and then the side effects accumulate, and they increase for one to two weeks after radiation is complete. Because as I said, the side effects accumulate. And once that is done, patients start recovering from then on. And we normally say recovery starts, um, recovery takes up to uh, three months after the radiation is complete. Uh, so uh, it's sadly a prolonged process. Uh, we are investigating, we are actively researching ways and means of reducing the radiation duration and therefore the side effects. Um, so. Um, I could point uh, people to several trials in this particular space, uh, but these are for very particularly meticulously selected patients based on data. Thank you for that. It's good to get a, um, a complete play-by-play, -play, for lack of a better term, of um, what people can expect from radiotherapy because, like you say, it is such an integral part of the treatment. Um, now, being a surgeon, are you only involved with the patient from... The actual surgery or do you tend to take people you know from start to end point? So as a surgeon um, I am with the patients all through the cancer journey. I see patients when they present to us with an early symptom. I'm with them through the diagnosis. 
I explain the diagnosis to them. Once we've done the investigations, we have a firm black and white diagnosis of head and neck cancer. I then walk them through the treatment options. If they undergo surgery, I will counsel them about the surgical procedure, the risks, the complications, what they can expect from the surgery and the recovery trajectory after the surgery. If the patients need radiation therapy, either before or after surgery, I will then send them off to my radiation oncology colleagues who will take the patient through the radiation therapy uh, nitty-gritty aspects. Given that you then see patients all the way through their mouth cancer journey, what are some of the common questions that you get asked from your patients? And um, also, what words of encouragement do you generally give I don't know a better way to phrase that. So from the time of diagnosis, it is a really, really hard time for patients. And and uh, my, my heart really goes out to patients who have diagnosis and especially those who find it difficult to cope simply because of lack of support within the community, within the family or for other reasons. So we have, it's not just me, we have a team, a team of clinical nurse specialists, uh, speech and language therapists, nutritionists and dietitians who will help the patient through the cancer journey. So when I first see patients and break the diagnosis to them, my clinical nurse specialist colleagues will be there and they will offer the patient, they and I will offer the patient lots of information about the treatment. So as a professional, I believe that the more information we give patients about the diagnosis, about the treatment, about the side effects they can experience, the recovery and the long-term outcomes, the more satisfied they are with the care and the more confident they can be with the eventual outcome they expect to achieve. So I work on a principle of information saturation. Different patients have different levels of saturation, but I give them information until they say, yes, all my questions have been answered. And that to me is this fundamental principle of counseling patients through. So we sit with patients as a team, not just once or twice, but several times until we know patients are fully aware of what the treatment involves for them. Once we do that, um, uh, we will then offer patients within that, uh, that envelope of information. We will offer them information about the treatment process, uh, the complications, the risk they're undergoing, because surgical procedures, some of the ones we do, are fraught with significant complications. And if, for whatever reason, a multitude of reasons, if the surgery doesn't go according to plan, then patients can expect a significant stay in hospital recovering from it. Thankfully, uh, the risk of death with head and neck cancer surgery, even major surgery, is very low. We know from good data that the chance of dying from a major head and neck cancer surgical procedure is less than 1 in 10,000 because we have honed our procedures, our pathway, our skill set to ensure good outcomes for patients. However, things can go wrong. When things go wrong, the subsequent treatment for patients get delayed or they have complications. They spend more time recovering from the complications. So we apprise patients of all this activity around the surgical pathway and then put them through the process. 
So I've heard what that first meeting is like from a patient perspective, from all of the ambassadors that I've spoken to, but not from a professional. So how is it going into that first meeting with a patient where you know you're going to be breaking this really life-changing news and you don't know what the reaction is going to be? The first meeting uh, when we break the diagnosis of cancer to a patient can be quite hard for the patient for the family and as a professional group, we don't underestimate the impact it has on us. So we have a clear agenda of what to offer the patient. Many times we have a clear plan of what the treatment will be, but other times we are led by what patients want as well. So we go to the meeting and we explain what the diagnosis is. We offer the patient the treatment we are recommending as a multidisciplinary team or the options for treatment we are recommending as a team. Once that is done, we then try and elicit the patient's preferences. Uh, many times the patients are in shock and cannot pick up all that information easily. So we therefore take a step back and we say, we don't have to make any decisions today. You can go away consult with your family, bring in more family members, you can sit down and chat again. We never pressure patients into making a decision on that day because that would be not the right thing to do for several reasons. So as I said, information saturation is key and for some patients, they can pick up the information in that first meeting quite quickly. Others work at a different pace and we're very happy to drip feed information on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. So it may take one, or more than one, sometimes up to three or four meetings for patients to fully understand what the treatment involves, what the toxicities are, what the complications are, the side effects and the recovery from the treatment. And we as a team with the right professional groups will sit down and discuss this extensively with our patient groups. When it comes to the surgery options, do patients get to choose what operations they undergo or is it very cut and dry and there isn't really any there isn't really any options for them to choose from it's just you have to have this you have to have x y z or is there a bit of freedom there can they sort of pick what they want what surgeries they want to undergo they can so many times when patients are uh, counseled for surgery we ex we explain to them what the surgical procedure involves what our preferred technique is for doing this sometimes patients come back and say i'd like this and not that and within limits of oncological expertise and within limits of cancer treatment we do flex with the patient's needs and uh, some patients have very clear views on this and we respect them and go with the patients uh, but whichever treatment it is we ensure that we elicit patient preferences and try and abide and respect those preferences for treatment. For, for mouth cancer, uh, the operation depends on where the cancer arises from. In the UK, one of the most common mouth cancers is one that occurs on the tongue. 
and in that case we need to take out the cancer with a sufficient margin of normal tissue around it and then send it to, uh, to pathology for assessment and based on the stage of the cancer we will also do what we call a lymph nodal dissection where we take away the lymph nodes in the neck from the jawbone to the collarbone and in some patients who have a much larger defect after the cancer is removed we then have to reconstruct that with skin from elsewhere so these are some of the common mouth operations we do. We also do other times uh, entities like removal of the jawbone and reconstruct that with bone from the leg. Uh, we sometimes have to take out the cheekbone and those are other operations we do again reconstruct with bone from elsewhere. Uh, so a lot depends on what the site of the cancer is and what the stage of the cancer is and the defect we're left with after that surgical treatment to decide what's the way to reconstruct that defect. Out of the different types of mouth cancer and head and neck cancer that you see, what's generally the most common? Um, I know that you've said tongue cancer is, is very common, but what about things like lip cancer? Um, how common do they tend to be? So in, in, in the UK, mouth cancer is one of the most common cancers. Uh, voice box cancer is going down in numbers. Uh, and that's because we've had a good um, anti-smoking policy. Uh, cancer of the throat and the back of the throat arising from the tonsil and the back of the tongue is increasing in numbers. And that's because the human papilloma virus induced cancer at the back of the throat. Um, that's the way the numbers are playing out in England. However, worldwide, the picture is slightly different in that um, mouth cancer is significantly more common in other parts of the world where uh, smoking is prevalent, where use of chewing tobacco is prevalent and uh, as is reverse smoking and other practices. Mm -hmm. Now, just as a, um, as a final note to end on, if you had... Any words of advice, any words of encouragement or comfort to someone that is either currently undergoing mouth cancer treatment or is a close friend or family member of someone that is undergoing mouth cancer treatment? What would your advice be to, to those people who might be listening? So if you are presented with a diagnosis, I have a few bits of advice for you. Number one, don't lose hope. The UK is an excellent place to receive mouth cancer treatment. Almost all multidisciplinary teams are ex very experienced. They're very good at offering treatment for, for head and neck cancer and mouth cancer. And you are in excellent hands. So please don't lose hope. The outcomes after treatment are repeatable, reportable and, and, and excellent. So um, I would trust your professional completely. Secondly, ask questions of your professional. Ask your professionals a lot about your cancer treatment. Feel empowered to ask about how long the treatment will last, what the side effects will be, what you can expect from the treatment, what are their success rates, how many of those procedures have your professional group done? You're empowered to ask these questions. The more information you have for yourself, the more informed you are, the more satisfied with the treatment you will be. So ask questions repeatedly. Thirdly, there's a lot of research going on in the UK on head and neck cancer. If there is a trial going on at the center where you're going to be treated, 
ask your professionals, is there a trial going on? Can I participate in a trial? Because we know that patients who participate in trials, for whatever reason, seem to have a good outcome. So where there is a trial going, ask your professional group if you can participate and get into the trial. Otherwise, I wish you good luck. But remember that this is hard treatment for the vast majority of patients. And the multidisciplinary team is well versed in walking you and traveling with you through the treatment process and beyond. Thank you, Vin. That's such a lovely note to end on. And um, yeah, I know, I know that your words are going to mean a lot to a lot of different people. So just thank you for your time. And I'm going to let you go now so that you can carry on doing the amazing work that you do. And um, yeah, just thanks again for talking to us. I don't know if I've ever spoken to someone that's more engaged with their patients, more the, like just such a human perspective on um, what must be such a tough job. And um, yeah, I, we really appreciate him spending some time with us. Um, Karen, if people want some more information about head and neck cancer, um, specifically mouth cancer, because that's what we sort of deal with, um, where can they go? Well, they can go to our website, uh, which is dentalhealth.org or the the specific um, mouthcancer.org, which is obviously specifically for um, Mouth Cancer Action Month. So they can get a lot of information on there. But there is, um, you know, speaking to somebody who is actually treating patients and the empathy and the experience and the uh, expertise that that he has you know patients are in such good hands when they're visiting somebody that um that is able to treat them um treat them like that mm -hmm. yeah and um if you want to follow along with the campaign um and see some of the video clips from the interview that we did with um professor paleri as well they'll be on our youtube channel as well as across all our social medias um if you just search mouth cancer action month across any platform you should find us um but if not at mouthcancer.org on twitter and facebook at oral health foundation on instagram um and I think a, a nice thing to to end with there is just to echo Vin's message of don't lose hope. You're in fantastic hands and um, just keep on keeping on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, the, it's wonderful that somebody can give people such a positive message that there is light at the end of the tunnel mm -hmm. and there are people out there that are working for you and to to give you the best um, outlook for the future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.